The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, we are so very thankful for this good news. That the gospel has come to us. That the free offer of salvation is made also to us. That we too may come into your household as full and fellow citizens of the saints that that we're not second class, that we don't receive some lesser blessing. But Father, this news has come to us that we might turn and believe and receive all that you have promised. And so Father, we pray that as we behold this word this morning, that those who have not yet grasped these promises, those who have not yet with open hands of faith received Christ Jesus as Lord, that today would be the day that you would send your spirit to give them hearts of flesh, hearts that see and believe, come to love Christ Jesus as Lord. For those of us who are already in him, Father, would you strengthen us in that? Would you encourage us? Would you help us to see and appreciate our salvation all the more as we come to recognize all that you did to make it happen? Father, again, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As you go ahead and return to your feet one more time, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We read this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. Andrew, I want you to know that you weren't in your normal place and I just panicked. About two lines from the end, I was thinking, how do I notify Brian that I don't see Andrew without panicking the whole congregation? So now it's all turn and look at Andrew and thank him for distracting us for not sitting in his ordinary spot. Who needs enemies, right? 
So it occurs to me that for many Christians, the whole of redemption is wrapped up in nothing other than Christ's work on the cross. As you meet and speak with fellow believers, what you will so often find is that in their theology, there are really only three important moments in all of history. There was a moment when Christ Jesus died on the cross, making us savable. There is the moment in which they chose to turn and repent and believe. And then there's the moment they go to heaven. That's really the sum of it. There's these three important, meaningful moments in their life. And then there's just a bunch of time. That because they have such a narrow understanding of redemption, such a myopic view of salvation that really just does narrow it down to the cross, conversion, and then someday heaven, that because of this, they have no awareness of the way in which the Holy Trinity has been at work. The triune God, each person of this triune God has been at work in their salvation. Specifically, they have no understanding of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in their salvation. But Paul isn't one of those people. The Apostle Paul, as we have been coming to understand week after week, he brings us to a very cosmic view of our redemption. I've used the phrase, and I don't know where it came into my mind. I'm sure this isn't mine. So I credit whoever first said it, but it's almost as though the Apostle Paul sweeps us up into heaven. And, and he gives us this overarching view of our salvation and says, let me show you what all has really happened. Yes, from your perspective, you heard about Christ in the cross. You turned and you trusted in him. And then maybe you spent the next 30, 40, 60, 80 years just waiting for heaven. But let me show you how much more has been at work here. Let me show you your redemption spreading out from eternity past to eternity future. Let me show you all members of the Godhead at work in your salvation. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit coming to apply. That we may see this and behold this and may rejoice in all of this to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, as I've, I've tried to show you, this is far from an impractical thing. This isn't just the kind of thing that's interesting to know, that it's, it's helpful to understand. It's most practical. You remember the way that the Apostle Paul prayed at the end of chapter 1? He prayed, God, enlighten the eyes of their heart that they may know the hope to which you have called them, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards them who believe. That this unfolding that he's doing before our eyes, as uncomfortable as it is, Listen, it's much easier from our standpoint to just understand salvation as a moment of conversion. Maybe to just look at the cross of Jesus Christ and understand he died for my sins and that's all I need to know. We're very, we're very comfortable, most of us, just staying right there. And it hurts our hearts and it stretches our brains and can make us incredibly uncomfortable and sometimes even feeling off balance as we go with Paul on this ride. As we see the cosmic scope and scale of our own redemption can be a very uncomfortable thing, but according to the Apostle Paul, it's worth it. The eyes of our heart would be enlightened. That we better see and know and understand 
the great power of God towards us who believe. I have found in my own life, I have found in counseling in the lives of others, that oftentimes the greatest medicine for fear or for a weak sense of assurance is a more robust and biblical and healthy understanding of exactly this. Looking into the eyes of a believer and saying, let me tell you something, you who feel so very weak, you who doubt that you're going to make it to the finish line, you who wonder how God could possibly have love for a wretch like you, let me show you the way in which the full Godhead was and is and will always be at work in your salvation. The God of the universe is interested in you. He has entangled himself with you and with your salvation. But for many, this is so foreign. Even that language, to say the Godhead, what are we, what are we talking about? A hydra of some sort? Are we talking about a beast with, with multiple heads sitting upon their shoulders? Well, of course, what we mean is the blessed, holy trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The reality is that there is only one true and living God. The most basic confession, the Shema. There is one God. And there are three people who are this one God. Co-equal, co-eternal, one in being and substance and power and honor and glory. And yet distinct in their personhood. Now if we slow down and think about it, will recognize just the necessity of this trinity. The, the fact that everybody loves, you, you go out on the street and you talk to the average believer and you say, what is the thing you, you most delight in thinking about with regards to God? Surely you won't go to too many people before you hear them say, well, I know that God is love. But love requires an object. Love requires a lover and one being loved. So what we're stuck with, if we do not have this triune God, if our God is not Trinity, is we've got this God who was very lonely for all eternity until we came along. We had a God who may have had some sense of something within himself, but no one to place it on. Not a God who was exercising love. But what we see in Scripture is that there is this God who is love and he has existed perfectly in this reciprocal love, this mutual indwelling kind of love that eternally we find the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit delighting in each other's presence. The Father expressing his love to the Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit. We see this God who is love. He has always been love, always been expressing love, always delighting in the glory of his own perfect love. But we don't just land at this based on implications of what it would mean to have a God who is love with no one to love. The scripture reveals it to us. You won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the scriptures. And so oftentimes people will say, well, then how can you know that it's true? Well, you go to the Old Testament, and while it isn't expressly laid out for us there, not the way that we see it in Christ Jesus. The Trinity wasn't fully revealed until the coming of Christ Jesus, but you can perceive it in the Old Testament. You can most certainly see the Trinity at work in the Old Testament. And yet then when we see in the coming of Christ Jesus, just some of the ways that he begins to speak, you, you can't help but think, wait a minute, he's saying things about himself that can only be said of divinity. 
He's saying things about himself that would truly be blasphemous if he were not the true and living God. And yet he seems to be speaking to another who is also himself God. He seems to be promising the sending of another who is also himself God. Consider Jesus saying these words, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Think about the way he spoke with regards to his love with the Father, his eternal love. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You think about even these times when we find Jesus rejoicing and responding to the works of the Father in the movement of the Spirit in his own life. In that same hour, he, that is Christ, in that same hour, the Son, in the Holy Spirit, said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We see the Son delighting in the Father, loving the Father, rejoicing in the Father, glorifying the Father. How? In the Spirit. So we see this mutual indwelling, this mutual admiration, this mutual love, this other-directed love. Amongst the Godhead, this love that has always been from eternity past. What this tells us then is that this love, this, this God was never lonely. He was never incomplete. He was never dissatisfied. You can, you can imagine what this would look like, right? You've probably seen it before that you've got a couple that comes together, a husband and a wife, and they somehow feel incomplete. Not driven by some love for each other or some completeness that they enjoy together. But they, they've got something that they're lacking. And so they say, we know what we need. We need a baby. That'll fix it. How often does that work out? The child can't provide something that's not already there. But compare that with a couple that is so madly in love. So satisfied in each other. So in enjoying the communion that God has given them, and then as they come together as one flesh, the overflow of that union being a child, a child who they then welcome into that love, then welcome into that communion, bring them into the family to enjoy that which has always been. Do you see it? That this is the picture of the triune God whom we serve. We didn't complete him. He didn't create us to complete him. He created us that we could be offered an invitation, that he could bring us in to this love that he has always enjoyed with himself. He could bring us into this family, this self-satisfied family, that we could enjoy this perfect love. And so as you, as you begin to consider the words of Paul, you begin to consider the nature of the Godhead, and you, can, you begin to consider the, the work of of each member of the Godhead and the bringing about of our salvation, as we will do this morning, you'll learn pretty quickly that if God is not three in one, then the whole nature of salvation is changed. The character, the tone, the shape of the whole thing is changed. If you don't have this God who is three in one, think about it. There's no son for the father to give if he's not always the father and the son has not always been the son. Again, there's no invitation. There's no family for him to invite us into. This whole thing just becomes about pleasing some God who is incomplete in himself. Some grumpy old man that needed someone to boss around. Some grumpy old king that needed someone to bring him honor and glory that he didn't otherwise have. But if this God was there, if he was always there glorifying himself and enjoying himself and in love and communion with himself, 
lacking nothing in himself, then the whole thing becomes an act of love towards us. Do you see? So Paul's theology is absolutely Trinitarian. You, you will hear these tones. You will hear some of the clearest statements of the God who is three and one running all throughout. You'll hear it in his prayers. You'll hear it in his invocations. You'll, you'll hear it in, in the way that he, he blesses his people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He says you need the blessings of the whole of this triune God. You need your heart blessed and fixed upon the God who is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each coming to you in a way that is appropriate to their personhood. The Father sending, the Son coming, the Spirit applying. You need the whole of God. Think about the way that he begins his letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. His mind is always drawn to the triune God of the universe working out this salvation as he invites us into the family. As he invites us to sonship, as he invites us to enjoy this love and communion that has always been perfectly his. Again, I say, I, I fear that for most Christians, they don't think in these kinds of terms. Most of us, for much of our believing life, very ignorant of the work, specifically of the Holy Spirit, with regards to our salvation. We confess it. Think about the way that we conclude every single service. I love doxology. I love doxology, not only because it's a song I sang as a little boy and it's always resounding in my heart when I wake up in the mornings. I love doxology because it is deep theology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all three worthy of our honor and our worship and our praise. This is essential doctrine to the Christian faith. This isn't secondary. This isn't meaningless. This isn't nice for you to understand and believe because, beloved, no one will understand it, but we must all believe it. Scripture says it. Again, it's essential to the nature of the gospel. And part of what it means to worship and to honor and to glorify this God is to thank him for all that he has done. You thank each person of the Godhead for those works that were particular to him. Now, again, they're inseparable. All that God does, God does as a triune God. And yet we see it was the son who was sent. It was a father who did the sending. It was a spirit who came to apply. Again, we, we can't fully understand this. No man can. Anyone that says they understand the Trinity, fully and rightly understands the Trinity of God, they're confused at best, lying at worst. No, don't come to me after worship and tell me it's like a three-leaf clover. It's not. Don't tell me it's like water, mist, and vapor. It's not. Don't tell me it's like a man who is also a father, a son, and a friend. It's not. All manner of heresy flow out of men trying to wrap this thing in a bow. 
trying to take this incredible mystery that we're meant to stand and look at in awe and wonder. And we try to wrap it up in terms that make sense to us. Make our hearts settled and comfortable. Instead, you need to stand before this trinity and tremble. You need to look at this triune God and say, there is nothing. There is no analogy. There is no perfect thought. There is no picture that I can draw for myself. I just have to see it and believe it. Again, I say it's foundational to our confession. Go back to the Apostles' Creed, the earliest of creeds. How does it go? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Savior, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What does it go on to say? I believe in the Holy Spirit. The foundation of our faith is believing in this God who is three and one. And part of believing, part of beholding, part of glorifying is seeking to know that which the scripture has revealed. As uncomfortable as it makes us. As deep as those waters may feel. So one of the things that we're going to see as we work through Paul's theology is that he has a very clear understanding of the ways in which each member of the Godhead works in a way that is appropriate to his personhood. A father acting as a father, the son acting as a son. The Holy Spirit is the communion and the love and the, and, and the expression of that father and that son to us coming and applying all that has been promised and been uh, accomplished. We see it here in chapter seven, or excuse me, verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 2. Where he says that it is Christ, that is the Son, who came. Preach peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. We talked last week about the reality that it is Christ Jesus who comes and does the preaching. Anytime his word is in the mouth of the apostles, that is Christ who is preaching. And anytime we take that apostolic witness and then we confess it to the world, it is very much Christ that is doing the preaching. I left this place last week feeling some sense of just amazement and, and blessedness at the reality that we truly do behold this treasure in earthen vessels. The reality that we go out and we offer another man's riches to the world freely. How glorious a thing is that? But he goes on here in verse 18. That's where we're going to focus this morning. He says, for through him, this is Christ, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So this word for here, it, it means because. Some, some people have read it to mean so that. This, this word, it, it can be translated in a couple of different ways. Some people have understood this to be saying, he came and preached peace so that we can have access to the Father. And certainly it's true that men must hear this gospel of peace. They must turn and repent and believe and be joined to Christ in order to have this access. But as Paul has been very quick to make clear to us, this access has already been secured in Christ Jesus. Promised before the foundation of the world. Accomplished 2,000 years before you were born and now preached to you in time. It is preached to you because the access is there. Because the thing has been accomplished. So Christ Jesus came and preached peace because... Through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. The underlying basis for this preaching, the thing that makes Christ's preaching and our preaching anything other than empty, is the fact that this access has been accomplished. Through Christ in the spirit. We see these two ideas coming together in uh, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace with God through faith alone in Christ alone. Access to God through faith alone in Christ alone. These aren't two separate things. Those who have Christ have peace. Those who have peace have access. So you come to Christ Jesus for the peace, for the access, for everything you need with regards to God the Father. But I wonder, have you come to realize that this is the true and ultimate goal of your salvation? I would be lying if I said there weren't plenty of times when I preached the gospel and it was all about escaping hell. You don't want to go to hell, do you? You don't want to burn forever, do you? You don't want to be punished for your sins, do you? Well, the answer from everyone is, of course, no. Who wants to go to hell? You don't have to be regenerated. You don't have to have the spirit of God. You don't have to have a heart of flesh to not want to burn in hell. But to want God? To desire God? To have a heart that enjoys and delights in God? That's a thing that only he can do. And that is the end of this thing. He says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to what? To treasures? Yes. To blessings? Yes. To eternal life? Yes. All found in what? The Father. To the Father. As adopted sons, there is no greater privilege than this. You'll remember it was back in March of 2022 that we preached about the doctrine of adoption. And I read to you then, when I read to you again, a word from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in so many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. Enjoying God in the way that only a son has a right to do. Adopted in as full members of the family, not there is Christ Jesus, and then there's these adopted sons. It's this is my beloved son, and here are his beloved brothers. Father receiving and delighting in you as a loved son. Again, I say folded in to the love that the father has for the son and the love that the son has for the father. You remember what Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed. This ought to stop us all in our tracks. This is the kind of word that a man should be able to stand in the pulpit, read, close his, close his Bible, as we all sit in silence and weep. Tears of joy. Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. If you would but for one second in your life believe those words, how would it be transformed? For those who are joined to Christ Jesus in repentant faith, the love that the Father has for the Son rests on you. Now the reality is not everyone can call God their Father. In this room right now, what do we have, 100 and 150 people? In this room there are only three people who can call me Father. Some of you can call me friend or something else. 
There's only three here who can call me Father. There are those who can call God their Father. Then the rest are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. You remember the way that Jesus spoke to the Jews who came out to meet with him. He said, what Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We'll return to this before the sermon is concluded, but we must recognize not everyone can call God their father. I go beyond this to say not everyone has a desire to call God their father. Only those who are in Christ Jesus who love the son. To love the father is to love the son. To love the son is to love the father. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That word access, if we're not careful, we can read it as just an open door. It's a door that's left open, but now it's up to you to walk through it. And I ask you, if you've been adopted into a family and on the first day in that family's house, they look at you and they say something like this. Look, you live here now if you want to. We'll leave the door open. You come and go. I don't care. We just won't lock it on you. How about that? How's that for a deal? To express our love for you, we won't lock the door every time you go out. Versus a family that says, you belong here. We are your family and this is your home. We have brought you here. We have carried you here. We have fought for you to be here. We will continue to fight for you to be here. That's the difference in this word. Yes, 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 of course, you must believe. You must turn from your sin and have faith in Christ in order to enter through this gate. Ephesians 3.11 says that in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence. Through our faith in him. How do we come boldly? How do we come with confidence? It is through faith. But this word access here is prosagage. It's only used three times in the whole of the New Testament. Here in Ephesians and then in that Romans passage that I read earlier from Romans 5. Pros means towards. Ago means to lead. To lead towards. It's as though Christ Jesus has carried you to the Father. Isn't that what it says in 1 Peter 3.18? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God. It's as though he has taken you by the hand and said, my father wants you. My father has sent me to get you. I have come to give my life to take you to the father. Now come with me as he takes you and he leads you into the presence of the father. This isn't just an open door waiting on us to find it. This isn't just some open door hoping that someday we're going to turn from ourselves in our own power and walk through it. This is the Son of God carrying you into the presence of His Father. He takes us and leads us. So that He can then look to us and say, much like He did Mary Magdalene, I go to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. That He is not our Father in exactly the same way He is the Father of the Son. The Son has eternally been the Son. The Son is the Son by nature. We are sons by adoption. We have been grafted in and welcomed into the family. And yet again, this same love falls upon us. We can relate to Him. Just as we see Christ relating to the Father, we relate to Him like this. Having been reconciled and enjoying this peace that He's purchased. This real and accomplished reconciliation. Again, it isn't just an offer. It isn't just an invitation. I said half tongue in cheek that the way many of us understand this is that Christ Jesus came and died to make us savable. 
That's not the language of Scripture. He came to purchase those who were His. He came to cleanse us by His blood. He came to take us by the hand and bring us into the presence of His Father. Redemption accomplished. Not merely hypothetical. Not potential. That's why when we get to verse 19, we hear these words. We are no longer accomplished. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. It's as though Jesus Christ comes and says, you belong to this family now and I've come to bring you home. Didn't I say in the beginning when we first considered the teaching of Paul in that first chapter of Ephesians, it's a one-way rescue mission. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is through the Son. It was not for nothing that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also, in one of his I am statements, said that I am the door of the sheep. Anyone who comes in will be saved. That there's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through the Son. And oh, how men have tried to invent their ways. They've tried to go up and over the wall. They've tried to build ladders for themselves. They tried to sneak in on the coattails of others. The answer is there's only one way in and it is through Christ. So the invitation that we make to people is only Christ. The Christ of Scripture. The Christ who has been crucified. Christ who died and rose again. The Christ who came to die for our sins to reconcile us to God. This is the only Christ through which we may approach God. Through Christ. So what does it mean then to come through Christ? Like that's a... That's a cool idea okay but he's not a physical gate standing there it's not some button that you press or some bell that you ring give me something physical to do and I'll do it and isn't that how so many of us have built our theology we need something to do we need somewhere to go we need something to sign we need a card to put in the back of our Bible we need something to hang our hat on so what does it mean to come through Christ to the Father well, it's at moments like this when I'm so supremely thankful for all the pictures God has given us in the Old Testament. Sometimes it can be frustrating for us as we read the Old Testament. So much of it can be, particularly with regards to the law and the, the temple and the sacrifices and the priests, it, it can be very confusing. And we can be tempted at times to wonder, why didn't Christ just come right in the beginning with Abraham? Or, or with Adam, for that matter. Why wasn't it just man fell, Jesus came, redemption happened? Why did you have this building up in these shadows and these signs and these pointers and these images that were so vague at times? Beloved, it's in part because of this. I've told you that I heard one, a man once say that the Old Testament saints, it was almost like they were living in a children's pop-up book. There were, there were people underage and God was showing them these pictures and preparing their hearts and leading them along so that when Christ Jesus stepped into time, they would recognize him immediately. That's the one we've been waiting for. Behold, that's the Lamb of God. That's the way to God we've always been waiting for. But I tell you that also it works for us in reverse as we come to these texts and we know that we must come through Christ Jesus to get to the Father. We don't know what to do with this. Praise God, we can look back to the pictures of the Old Testament. We can look back to the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all the animals that were sacrificed. We can see the high priest that was interceding on behalf of the people. We can see a picture like Moses going up onto the, onto the mountain and saying, God, if you destroy them, what will happen to the glory of your name? 
We see a temple in which God expresses to his people, I desire to dwell with you. But then we see a curtain between the people and the God who dwells with them that is there to protect them lest he consume them. We can see the carelessness of men like Nadab and Abihu who come and offer strange fire so that they themselves are consumed. We see Uzzah reaching out his hand to touch the ark. He also falling dead because of the holiness of God. We can see the picture of the Passover lamb as people huddled in their house. As people huddled in their house and they heard the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and and the wailing all the way up the street as the Egyptians died. And the young little Hebrew boy looked at his father and said, wait, what's our plan again? Well, son, you see, God promised. So we killed a lamb and we put that blood on our doorpost and by that blood we will be spared. Dad, that's your plan? Because I'm the oldest in the house and I need to make sure we got this right. That as God's wrath pours forth on the entire earth and he sends the floodwaters and it is but this family of eight that he takes and puts in this boat that the boat rises higher and higher and higher and higher and the boat takes the beating but the people are spared. And God remembers his people upon that boat. He lets them out and he blesses them. And we read that Noah walked with God. As we think about the Passover proper and all that blood that came and it ran through the valley next to the temple complex and the stench of that blood and the bang or the neighing or the yee-hawing of sheep, whatever sheep do whenever you slit their throats, But the sound and the smell and the noises and the all that blood. Do we have all these pictures to show us what does it mean to come to the Father through Christ? All of that. You take all of that. That's a picture of what he has accomplished. So in the same way that a family huddled in that house trusting that if this blood doesn't spare me, I've got no hope. We find our hope in Christ. That's how we come to the Father. The same way that the family hit out in the boat saying, if this boat doesn't hold, we too will perish. That's what it looks like to come through the son to get to the father. Just as you went to the high priest and you said, you must pray on behalf of me and my family because I'm offended the living God. That's what it looks like to come to the father through the son. Do you see it? Praise God for these Old Testament pictures that he's given us. We could say with the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You never come to the Father apart from the Son. It's not as though he merely makes an introduction and says, y'all got it from here. It's not as though when we come to God in prayer and we say, I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. It's not as though we're just saying, hey, Jesus sent me. He's always there as the mediator, as the intercessor. As one applying his work to our life that the Father would receive us and hear us and 
not have his wrath jump out and consume us. And yet, at the same time, we have real and open access. The veil to the, to the temple was torn. We could come to him at any time, freely and openly. We don't have to be in a house like this. We don't have to keep going back to Jesus and asking, would you give me another one of those introductions? It's that in him, we are already there seated in the presence of God. So we have the same kind of access to the Father that Christ Jesus had to the Father. We come directly to him and make our petitions known, always though, through Christ. So that every time you come to the Father, we do well to slow down and think, in whose name do I come? Through whom do I come? What did it cost for me to be able to come? I come in the name of Christ Jesus. I come through him and through him alone. And the minute you come to the Father and you leave the Son out of your thoughts, you're no longer praying. You're not rightly coming to the Father. But praise God that this means that we all then, having this same access, we come to the Father no matter your status in the church. No matter how long you have been here, no matter your position as a teacher or a preacher or a deacon or a lay person, that everyone has equal access to the Father. That just as you don't come to the Son and say, hey, could you get me back in the, can you get me another meeting? Can you get me another hearing with your Father? You don't need to come through me or through your brethren. You don't need to age a little bit and grow a little bit in order to have this access to the Father. Will that sense of communion grow? Absolutely. Will your awareness of his presence go? Absolutely. Will your boldness to come to him grow? I pray to God that it does. But you need to know from day one, if you are in Christ Jesus, this access is yours. You go to him as father. For through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the father. Now, Greek can be difficult because oftentimes there's no capitalization, there's no punctuation. It's hard to figure out exactly what's meant here. The word pneuma can just mean spirit or it can mean capital S, the Holy Spirit. So some people have read this to mean we come in one spirit, like in one mind. Of, of one accord, we together as a people come to God. But I think clearly this is a Trinitarian line of thought that Paul has here. And the one spirit he's talking about is the spirit of God. We are, yes, we are one people. And this one spirit does dwell in us so that we are of one accord and of one mind and of one heart in our approach to God. But it's clear here that he has in mind the Holy Spirit. So I want you to turn with me to Romans 8. I gave you a homework. I always send my homework through the internet. I don't know if all of you have the internet yet. It's kind of new. Because we, we talked a lot about being in Christ, right? We've spent the better part of 50-something weeks talking about what it means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? I think we get the clearest picture of that here probably in, in Romans 8, better than anywhere else in all the Bible. So we've got to move with a little bit of swiftness here. So I want to teach you the whole of Romans to get here. That's the hard part, right? Y'all already know the better. Y'all already know. Y'all mastered Romans 1 through 7, I'm going to assume. <laughs> having laid out the gospel, having laid out the the depravity and the lostness of man, our, 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 our guilt before God in Adam, our need to, 
to be justified and made righteous in Christ Jesus. This, this war that continues to wage in our hearts between the flesh and between the spirit, he comes to this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's, he's setting something up here, the reality that we have been forgiven, that God has no wrath for us, that we have been made righteous and, and justified but before God. And then skipping down to verse five, he, he talks about a, a lot of what we've talked about in verses one through three of Ephesians chapter two, just the depravity of the flesh and the flesh's desire to do everything that is contrary to God. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Here it comes. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He says, you, in fact, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. How do I know if I'm in the spirit? I know that I'm in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God is in me, the spirit of God dwelling in me, that is a, a taking up permanent residence in me. This isn't just a, hey, I need some place to park for a while. This isn't the demons called legion saying, please don't send us out into wandering places. Put us into those pigs that we may have some place to live. This is the spirit of God coming and making a home within you. Making you yourself a dwelling place for the spirit of God. And we know going back to Ephesians 1.13 that we ourselves, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When we heard the gospel of truth. The message of salvation and believed in him. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying here is, is it to be in the spirit is to have the spirit in you. And you, you begin to see this interconnectedness of it all. The terms can get confusing because we're talking about highly spiritual and invisible things. I, I was thinking about that this week. I believe that this is why the Holy Spirit can make men go all kinds of cuckoo. We have some understanding of Christ Jesus because God became man. And we have some understanding of God the Father because in our little pea brains, he's just the one that stays up there in heaven somewhere where spirits belong. But what do you do when the one who is spirit comes and dwells within you? And so men tend to do one of two things. You just ignore any of his operation. You ignore any of his ministry to your life or you make it into something wacky and weird and loud and boisterous and distracting. Some kind of special powers that only certain people get. But what he's saying here is to be in the spirit is to have the spirit in you. And you all have the spirit. You yourself are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. How do I know? Because the spirit's in you. How do I know the spirit's in you? Because you have faith in Christ Jesus. So we, we see the interconnectedness of it all. But you need to see he doesn't just say that he is the spirit of God. What does he say? He is the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. There's only one Holy Spirit. It's not that God has a spirit that he sends, God the Father, and then the Son has a spirit that he sends. No, there's only one Spirit. This same Spirit can rightly be called the Spirit of Christ because this is the Spirit that rested on him. 
Again, we see these beautiful pictures of this. Think about the baptism of Christ Jesus as we hear the Father expressing His love for the Son and then that love is made known in the coming of the Holy Spirit like a dove and resting upon Christ. And then we read all throughout His life from His conception all the way through His resurrection. We read that He did all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit filled beyond measure with the Holy Spirit. That in His humanity, everything that Christ Jesus did, He did in the power and the working of the Spirit of God. How did the Son lay down His will? How did the Son willingly suffer to the glory of the Father? Because the Spirit of God was upon Him. There was only one Spirit of God, and this Spirit was on the Son, leading the Son, guiding the Son, ministering to the Son, strengthening the Son, that He would grow in wisdom and honor with God and with man. This is all the work of the Spirit in the Son. This is the Spirit. This is the Spirit that now comes to us. This is why He says in John, uh, John 16, He says, It's to your advantage that I go away. What a crazy thing. You know how I get teary-eyed, so I won't really go too deep into it now because everybody's tired of seeing me cry. But you know how teary-eyed I get about the thought of the Apostle John leaning his head back against Christ at that supper, looking him face to face, maybe inches away. Put yourself there and then imagine that Christ gazing intently into your eyes in that moment looks to you and says, it's better for you that I go away. Because I will send to you another helper. The reality is there's not a one of us in here that would sign up for that. It is better because he says it's better. We have seen that it's better. But if you could have Christ in this room in the flesh, who wouldn't take that over the promise of the Spirit? You're lying if you say otherwise. But he says it's to your advantage that I go and I send this Spirit. Because he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide all people in the truth. He will glorify the Son. We read in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. I send this Spirit that you can know your sin, that you can see my glory, and that you can call me Lord. It is better for you that I send my Spirit. But you've got to see what else he says. He doesn't just say, I'm sending this spirit, the one spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. I send this spirit. And he can rightly be called the spirit of the father because the father sends him. That same spirit, he can rightly be called the spirit of the son because the son sends him. And just as the father had promised, we read this in Acts 2, that it's the promised Holy Spirit. Promised to who? To the son that he would send him to us. But what does Paul say in Romans 8? He doesn't just say he's the spirit of Christ. He says that he's Christ in you. This is why on that same night in John 14, he says, John 14, 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. I'm going to send this spirit, but not to everyone. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. How did the spirit dwell with them? In what place did the Spirit dwell with them? In the one that came and tabernacled with them, in Christ Jesus. You've seen His work all throughout my life, says Christ. You know the Spirit. You've heard His teaching. You've seen His power. You've seen His work. You will watch as He raises me from the dead. You know the Spirit in a way that the world doesn't because He's with you now. 
And He will be in you. But He goes on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Where is Christ Jesus today? The right hand of the Father. In His body. With the flesh. At the right hand of the Father. He says, I will come to you. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Is it any wonder then that in chapter 15 he says, let's just get straight to this whole thing about the vine and the branches. Maybe this picture will help you in some way to show you the thing that I'm trying to say to you here. But he's saying here, I'm coming to you. How am I coming to you? In this spirit that is the spirit of Christ. It's not just the spirit that rested upon me. It's the way in which I come to you. He goes on in that same prayer, to, or in that same conversation to say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come and make our home within you. How are you a dwelling place for Christ? Go ask any of these children. I could ask any of these children under the age of six, where is Jesus? Probably they're going to say two answers. Jesus is in heaven and we'll say, yes, yes, yes. Christ is in heaven. Where else is Jesus? He's in my heart. And we don't slap their mouth and say, that's stupid theology. You can't have a fleshly body in your own heart. We say, you're right, because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Do you see it? So this is what it means to be in the Spirit, that the Spirit comes. The Spirit of Christ, He comes, and it's Christ in us. He comes and He mediates to us the fullness of who Christ is and was and has done for us. Bringing to us all the grace and all the mercy and all the love and all the power that Christ Jesus has secured. It comes as Christ Jesus comes to you in his spirit. Again, I say applying to you everything that he has accomplished. This is what it means to be in the spirit. He goes on. I've got to rush now. He goes on in verse 12. Still, still back in Romans 8. Verse 12, he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to so live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Go work this out for yourself. But long and short of it is, you're going to begin to desire the things that I desire. When I come to reside in you, the thought of sin is going to be like vomit. You're going to walk in, want to walk in a way that honors and pleases and brings glory to God. So that this being in the Spirit, this having access to God, it is more than just offering up prayer, coming to, into His presence in prayer. It's a standing that's what that Romans 5 passage says, in which we stand. What did we read about Enoch and Noah? They walked with God. There's a very real presence with God in the way that we walk, in the way that we talk, in the way that we think, in the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our Sundays. It affects the whole of our life as the Holy Spirit is molding us and shaping us and changing us as Christ in us changes the way that we look it's the sanctification process but here's what we've got to get to i can't let you get out of here without seeing this verse 14 for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons the same how many spirits are there one spirit of god the spirit of christ the spirit of adoption as he comes and seals in our heart the awareness that we are his. How do I know that I'm adopted? I don't get some papers. I told you it's not about walking an aisle. It's not about taking a baptism. It's not about a cord in the back of your Bible. How can I possibly know that the adoption has gone through? 
How can I know that it's real? The spirit of adoption comes and seals the reality to our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Who else cried Abba, Father? Christ Jesus in the garden. He's crying out in this moment of agony in the depths of his passion. He is crying out, Abba, Father. This isn't some resting. This isn't some high level that you attain to, right? Like if you're a Christian for 20 years and you really learn to pray and you really learn to read your Bible and you really knock out all the sin, then finally someday you'll get into such communion with God you can go, hey, Abba, Father. No, this is when suffering comes and pain comes and torture comes and you're bleeding, you're you're sweating and crying blood and you know that there's nothing but suffering that awaits, but you trust that there's glory on the other side of that suffering. It's then that you cry out, Abba, Father. He says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do I know? Is the spirit there whispering in my ear? You're his child. So many people, we live like that, right? If God would just tell me, if he would just send a sign in the air, how how can I know? How can I know for sure that I'm his? He's saying right here, one of the ways you know for sure that you're his is that when suffering comes, you cry, Abba, Father. It's a cry of anguish and a cry of agony and a cry of desperation and a groaning knowing this is not the way the world is meant to be. He goes on to talk about that. We don't have time to cover it, but there's this this tension. I prayed about earlier this tension in our lives and there's a tension in all creation as it groans for the return of Christ Jesus. And it's when we feel all of that, where does your heart go? Where does your heart go when the suffering comes? Where does your heart go when the loss happens? Where does your heart go when the people that you trusted let you down? For the child of God, it goes to him and you cry out, Abba, Father. And by that cry, you know that you are his. You have evidence that the adoption has happened, that you come to him in this way. The non-believer can't cry out like this. At best, they can call him God. Now listen, I understand that when Christ Jesus prayed Psalm 22 upon the cross, he knew the end of the song. He knows that he will be glorified. He knows that the Father has not truly forsaken the Son. And yet in that moment, as the wrath and condemnation of God was upon him, and he felt that real separation, he doesn't cry out, Abba, Father, upon the cross. He cries out, my God, my God. Non-believers at best can call out, God, why would you let this happen? But the adopted son who has the spirit of adoption sealed within his heart, he cries out, Father, I trust you, but I need you. Abba, Father. And then we don't know. We don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to cry. He goes on to say, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I cry out, Abba, Father, and I don't even know what to say. And the brothers, we get together, we don't even know what to pray for. And and we're confused in our prayer and we're confused in our thoughts. We just know that He's our Father and that He is good. And we can praise God that in that moment we know that the Spirit of God is interceding. He knows our heart. He knows the will of God. He knows the perfect prayers of Christ. And He takes our prayers and He perfects them. 
So that when you pray something stupid or you pray nothing at all, you just lay on your face before God and all you can get out is a groan. The mumblings of a father, I trust you. You can be sure that the spirit of Christ in you is taking those prayers and making them perfect before the father. Do you see now what he's talking about as he says that through the son and by the spirit, we come to the father. Father God, we praise you. And we thank you. We thank you, Father, that this life, this eternal life, is so much more than just a moment of conversion and then wait for heaven. We thank you, Father, that every single moment matters. And because every single moment matters, that we come to you. We have access to you in the here and now through Christ Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done and in the spirit. Father, help us to see just just a, a, a millimeter, just a, a fraction more clearly what you have done and what you are doing through your spirit for your children. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth and in the name of Christ Jesus now. Again, Father, we ask it as always for your glory and our good and in Jesus name.